of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org. And today I am joined by a very special guest who has been a guest of the show a couple of times before. It is a name that all of you know out there. He is a household name in the preparedness and survival community. I like to call him the godfather of the prepping movement. I know that that's something that uh, he likes to credit to other people, but Mr. James Wesley Rawls of survivalblog.com. Thank you for being with us today, sir. Thanks for having me on. So, wow. Uh, you know, things things were wild the last time that you were on, and, and boy, does time move quick. And here we are, uh, several months down the pipe. Things look like they are falling apart at the seams by anybody's estimation that, that has two brain cells. What do you make of the world situation today and specifically our situation here in the United States? Well, domestically, I think that we're uh, entering a very fragile period Obviously, we're on the cusp of a major economic recession, possibly uh, leading into a depression. Inflation, even just since we spoke a couple of months ago, has back when just two months ago, for less than $4 a gallon. It's now over $5 a gallon and climbing rapidly. The uh, inflation problem is completely out of hand in the States. It's uh, even worse in Europe and the Eurozone uh, for all the countries in the EU. And I think that if you look at the overall situation, the, 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 the divisiveness in our country seems to have gotten even deeper. Uh, we have a, a huge divide between the coastal leftist woke population centers and the, and the more conservative heartland of the nation. That situation is not getting any better. I expect it actually get worse as time goes on. And as we get into the election cycle, the, the divisive rhetoric, I think, is going to ratchet up even more. I agree. 
I, I agree. I, I don't think that it, it could have put uh, been put any better than that. Um, you've covered recently developments of the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, the plan that has been put forth and looks like it's coming to fruition of Klaus Schwab. If you will, share with the audience some of your thoughts on that and exactly what direction that's moving, what headway that, that you think that they've made with this. Well, if you look at what happened at their last summit at Davos, Switzerland, we can see that they are accelerating their plans. They, ha they can basically smell blood in the water. Uh, because they had such success at controlling people during the COVID pandemic, with the masking, the social distancing, the forced so-called immunizations, they had great success. They have proven their modus operandi for controlling people via crises. And whether it's a pandemic, whether it's another wave of COVID, whether it's monkeypox or uh, some other uh, virus that's let loose, or if it's just a, a crisis uh, at, on the national level, like an economic crisis or even a, um, a political banking currency crisis, they've proven that they can manipulate, manipulate people and that they can get the mass media to go along with it. And these same folks that manipulated the COVID situation obviously totally manipulated the public reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's obvious that they, uh, they wanted to trounce on Russia, even if it meant allying themselves with a government that is not uh, particularly friendly to the West or particularly pro-democracy or, uh, or even pro-capitalism. Uh, the Ukrainian government is uh, at the very best a horrible compromise. And in the eyes of some, it's not that much better than the Russian government. So here we are spending not just trillions of dollars, but tens of trillions of, of dollars on our national budget that we can't afford. And the better part of, uh, you know, $200 billion dollars is been dedicated to Ukraine and they keep asking for more. And we, the apparently the US Congress and the Biden administration have conspired to open their checkbook and give them basically anything they want. So um, to get back to Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, these same actors that are attempting to institute world government have seen the success they had with the COVID pandemic. They're going to continue to manipulate and through psychological warfare and economic warfare, they're going to continue to draw down the United States economically and they're going to build up their own multinational milieu, whether it's we're talking politically, whether we're talking you know, trade deals or uh, in terms of uh, currencies, all around, they're setting themselves up to, to win in this situation. And the loser will be the traditional United States dollar 
and uh, the U.S. dollar's position as the world's reserves currency, and will obviously are going to end up as the losers in most of the tra trade negotiations that go on with Europe. You know, the, the World Economic Forum was originally a European forum, but they changed their, their name quite a few years back when they decided to go for the whole enchilada. And that truly is what they're after. They want it all. They can see that the Western governments, which are cash-strapped, are going to fall into line because at, at this point, they're pushing for a global currency. It'll be a digital currency, most likely in the form of a crypto, but it'll be fully transparent rather than opaque. And they want it fairly soon. And I think it could happen that all the enabling factors are there, all the technologies are there. And get this, for the first time in quite a while, we're getting close to parity of the US dollar and the euro, and we're right, almost, we're within inches of parity with, between the dollar and the Swiss franc. I suspect that when we get within a nickel of parity with the euro, that's when they'll announce a new global currency, and they'll say, you get new one new global buck, or whatever they're gonna call it, for each dollar, or each euro, or each Swiss franc. It could happen very easily, it can happen very quickly, and I don't think most people are ready for it, because once it does happen, all financial privacy is going to disappear. Yeah, yeah, and, and we're, we're seeing that with the fallout of the crypto markets right now. Uh, I've been following the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, because I think that they're they're a couple of the best predictors of where crypto markets are going, and kind of mm. it, it's a it's another vantage point I think of viewing this overarching theory. Absolutely. Uh, so one uh, one thing to to talk about crypto for just a minute. Uh, one thing that most people have overlooked is the fact that some of the major uh, investors in crypto, the folks they call the the Bitcoin whales are probably in the process of disassembling their portfolio of cryptocurrencies each time there's a run-up. And they can afford to wait, but when there is a run-up, they offload. And one of the reasons they're offloading is to hedge their bets because they can see that the sovereign cryptos, whether it's a CBDC uh, or a uh, publicly issued crypto coin by the governments, by one or more national, uh, Western European or North American governments comes into effect. When that happens, the governments are gonna absolutely declare war on the private cryptos because governments are kind of like the mafia. They don't like competition. And we'll see that as soon as they announce a sovereign crypto, they will make holding private cryptos either very difficult or very heavily taxed or outright illegal in a lot of countries. And I think the people that are heavily involved in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, all the others are recognizing is they need to get out while the getting out is good. Uh, they've got to 
they've got to offload the majority of their cryptos over the next year or two before that announcement comes. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I concur completely with that assessment. And I think uh, for some out there, it is a good buying opportunity. I've had a number of people that have emailed me regarding it, and and I know that they've they've talked to some other folks that are very active in the community as well. And um, it it is a a buying opportunity, but don't I, I wouldn't recommend people to jump into crypto as an investment the way that it has been uh, traditionally viewed, at least in the past few years, with with the blow up of Bitcoin and several of the others that have been out there. I look at it more as a, a means of transferring uh, funds, maybe for clandestine uses. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll kind of leave it at that. But I, I don't I, I've never looked at cryptocurrency as an investment um, very much the same way that I look at precious metals. And, and in the last interview that we did, we talked about that. And, you know, it, it was crazy because an hour went by like like it, 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 it was literally nothing. And, and I feel like we only scratched the surface on that. Uh, but I want to revisit this this. Uh, Getting back to Davos and the looming depression, the decreasing purchasing power of the dollar, which we see um, all these things, all, all these developments that are that are really coming together, uh, coalescing. What about BRICS? Because there has been uh, a number of things, myself included, a number of authors have authored a, a lot of stuff out there on BRICS. I have my theories on BRICS as one of the potential successors to the U.S. dollar in terms of a, a world reserve currency. But there are some data points that don't necessarily fit. I want to get your take on BRICS and the plausibility of that and, and kind of break down for the audience where um, the, I, I don't think that there's necessarily one power structure alone that's trying to upset the world economy. What sure. do you think? There's obviously competing factions and the BRIC block is one of them. I do think that the BRIC bloc, especially with Russia involved, is going to push toward a gold-backed currency. And if you look at the history of the last 30, 40 years, every time a country has even hinted at issuing a gold-backed currency, somebody goes to war with them or they get invaded. It happened in Libya. It happened in Iraq. And I think that the, the BRIC countries are are probably I'm sure they can see that happened, but they're all very they have a very high affinity for for gold. All but one of those countries are in the top 20 gold producing countries of the world. The only exception is India, and India by tradition has an incredibly high affinity for gold. is the only real currency they really trust, at least at the family level and uh, to a lesser extent at a national level. So there's an affinity there for gold with all of the BRIC countries. And I think they will push for a gold-backed currency. If you, you know, when we last spoke, the ruble was an absolute freefall. Well, it's actually gaining right now against most uh, world currencies because they have a partial gold tie. And uh, with all this talk about a new 
uh, hard brick currency of some sort. I suspect it will probably be an electronic currency, but with some redeemability uh, mechanism uh, into gold specie. When that happens, we'll, we'll probably see the dollar very quickly drop from the from the uh, center stage as the world's reserve currency. It could it could very well happen. All it would take is a couple of more OPEC countries to get involved and agree to settle their oil contracts in a BRIC currency. That's all it would take. I think that we've seen some moves. Uh, we, we, we've certainly seen some moves in that direction. Venezuela has absolutely uh, made a, a move in that direction. And they already have an electronic currency that they use internally in, in their own country that is oil-backed, which right. uh, they introduced in 2017, if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, I thought that that was very interesting on their part. It was kind of an early move to circumvent um, the uh, the sanctions that were put uh, in place on part of the United States government. And we're seeing some some uh, high degree of success against that on part of the Russians right now. Uh, you know, all the American pundits were saying, you know, Russia is going to be bankrupt overnight. These sanctions are going to be terrible. And, and now we see the ruble, you know, very, very well performing currency compared to many others in the world. And it continues to go up and up and up. Meanwhile, the U.S. dollar... The, oh, go ahead. The, uh, the Russian oil contracts have also done quite well. Russia is now producing more oil than they were before the Ukraine invasion. So what does that tell you? And either directly or indirectly, the two uh, biggest importers of Russian oil or substitutes for Russian oil, because there's a lot of offsets that go on uh, swapping oil between contracts, the two biggest uh, beneficiaries have been India and China. Here we are back to the brick. Yep. What? Speaking of Russian oil, and this is something that's that's very fascinating to me. I've got two questions that I want to ask that I think are, are very pressing. First, what is the EU going to do this fall? Because they have effectively blockaded their imports of oil, and we know that their green energy initiatives are going to fall well short of their needs to heat and uh, to maintain their environmental standards. What are they going to do? Well, already Germany has said we're going to have to set aside all of our green energy grandiose plans and go back to coal. And even if they go back to coal, which is going to be a fairly lengthy transition, if the Russians completely cut off natural gas to Western Europe, they're going to be freezing this winter and their industry is going to be absolutely sidelined. There won't be any heavy industry in Europe uh, if, the, if the natural gas gets cut, cut off and or uh, the uh, bulk oil or bulk, bulk fuel, the less heavily refined products like diesel, for example, 
it, they can kiss their economy goodbye and they can maybe kiss granny goodbye because granny's not going to be able to heat her apartment this winter. Right. It, it's very concerning. And, and when we see, you know, the, the economics of Davos group and uh, this great reset and uh, they're anticipating a, a Eurozone backed currency and, and it's, I don't know. I, I think that all these these things, uh, there's a lot of estimation that's going on thinking that the established order is going to maintain its status as thus. And that seems to be the Achilles heel here is that Europe really has no alternative than to work with Russia. And yet you have the Warhawks of NATO military industrial complex, which is. Uh, really pounding the war drum, it just doesn't seem like it's going to work to me. I have to agree there. Um, if anything, I think that we're going to see the European uh, economic block, the EU block uh, system fall apart over the next couple of years because the basic commodities economics uh, they're just not they're not they're not dealing in the real world. The real world is going to come back and bite them very quickly. They'll have um, the you know, the euro already is officially clocking north of nine percent inflation. The unofficial rate is around 16 or 17 percent. And in the eurozone, they're kind of trapped because they've all signed up for this this currency unit. Um, a few years ago, the big concern was Southern Europe and their debt level. But now, uh, even in Northern Europe, they're they're facing uh, very high inflation. It's going to get worse. And before it's all over, I think we're going to see the euro as a currency unit either get subsumed into a global currency unit or the euro just plain going away as the EU breaks apart. Because the the EU and the euro are joined at the hip. There's you can't have a European Union as currently constituted without a euro currency. And if countries start dropping out of the EU, just like England did, and I think they will, uh, they'll drop out even more rapidly than England did then either the European Union will dissolve or at least the the the, Euro, the EU currency, the euro, will in some way or the other be radically transformed or go away. Yeah, I can't disagree with, with, with a single point. That, that's kind of how I see it breaking down as well. On that note, the, the second point that I wanted to bring up, because we know that, that Europe is is going to be struggling. I think anybody with two brain cells knows that this fall, exactly as you put it, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. And, you know, we've had Joe Biden making statements saying that we were going to sell our energy assets to Europe. They didn't have anything to worry about. He's he's made some, you know, quasi. And it, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's extremely laughable. And yet there is no new domestic production in the United States. I mean, I, I get the emails from Texas Energy Commission. I have contacts in the Gulf region. 
you know, it, it's it's really, really bad times for domestic oil production here in the United States. And we have Joe Biden giving five million barrels from our strategic oil reserve to China. What do you make of that? Uh, poor Joe Biden is living in a fantasy land. He ought, I don't know how he expects to provide Europe with their energy needs. What's he going to do? Mail it to them in an envelope? Because there simply are not enough LNG ships. An LNG ship is not like a traditional tanker. It looks like a tanker ship, but it has several large spheres filled with natural gas. The, the keels for those ships are even physically different than the keel of a traditional tanker. You can't convert a standard tanker to an LNG tanker because the weight and balance is off. So uh, right now, I think they've laid down the keels for three or four new LNG tankers in South Korea. Well, whoop-de-doo, they would need 30 LNG tankers to make up for the difference uh, on, on the natural gas coming out of Eastern Europe. It's just not going to happen, in, at least not in the near future. So the, the chances of, of them being able to solve the uh, Western European energy crisis uh, are, are, are pretty darn slim unless there's some kind of agreement that can be reached uh, with um, either Iran or with the Russians. And I don't think an agreement with Iran is going to be reached. And even, even with Iran, I don't think the pipeline capacity exists. Um, no. And again, there aren't enough liquefied natural gas tankers available to transport it all. Also, from, from a counterterrorism standpoint, uh, I'm sure the terrorists are just licking their chops thinking about new LNG tankers because that whole infrastructure is coastal infrastructure and incredibly vulnerable to terrorism. Both the ships and the LNG terminals are prime terrorist targets, and I'm sure that hasn't been overlooked uh, by the various terrorist groups of the world. Oh, they're absolutely paying attention to it. And and I'll throw another variable in there. We know that China has the rights to the Panama Canal and that exclusive zone all around it. They're managing it. They're also digging a new canal across Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. It would be very easy, as we learned with the Suez Canal crisis uh, just a couple of years ago, where... You know, whether that was accidental, whether it was on purpose, who knows, um, you know, but it but it literally halted oil transports for that short period of time. And we felt the impact. Yep. We felt the impact from that. Not not so much on our shores. We felt it here. But in Europe, they really felt it. Now, all it would take is the Chinese government saying, you know what? Nah. Your new LNG tankers, we've passed some new safety regulation, and we're not going to allow them to come through. And so they're going to have to go all the way down past Chile and come back up. And that's going to make things that much more expensive and economically unfeasible. Uh, so, so from an insurance standpoint, I'm not sure if maritime insurance companies are going to want to insure LNG tankers going around the horn. No. No, that, that's that's another great point, uh, because they, it's that's a dangerous route. And uh, yeah, some of the most uh, treacherous water in the world. 
and and I would were I China and, and I always like to think, you know, if it think like your enemy, you know, how would I kill me? And that seems like a very likely avenue of approach for them if they want to put the final nail in the coffin of Western hegemony. I have to agree. Well, obviously, we're living in a very fragile world. Let's let's talk about some solutions. <laughs> you read my mind. You read that's that's a lot of doom and gloom there. That's a lot of doom and gloom. And and we know uh, things that that I've covered recently. The the developments coming out of Colombia, which are very disappointing. Uh, there was certainly a disappointing outcome, but one that I personally predicted, and I know several other people did as well, the, the victory of Gustavo Petro, who is a declared communist and is normalizing relations with Venezuela, Russia, China, um, very much uh, a part of the BRICS infrastructure that is looming. And they're already going to be participating in um, this larger plan called the Bolivarian Hurricane. But there, the one very important component of that in August, so right around the corner, is going to be military games that are going to be hosted in Venezuela. You've got the Venezuelan military, the Chinese military, the Russian military. Iran is going to have representatives there uh -huh. as well. Uh -huh. uh, so we have a cavalcade of, of governments that are hostile to the United States. We have people who are coming up on our border wearing Venezuelan military uniforms. That was just a few weeks ago. Uh, I was teaching class in Michigan. There was uh, some images of guys that were getting rolled up uh, near Del Rio, Eagle Pass, that area. And they're wearing military uniforms. I saw the camo pattern and said, that's Venezuelan military camo right there. They didn't just magically get that. They got it from their military contacts or their members of the Venezuelan military themselves, and they're making their way up. We would be very stupid to assume that at least a certain percentage of these people who are coming up on our borders that are coming from hostile places to the United States, the governmental policies uh, are hostile to the United States, that these people have military and intelligence training. And that they're going to be conducting guerrilla warfare at a certain time, sometime in the near future. Um, mm -hmm. On that note, you know, what we didn't get to the last time that, that you were on the show is guerrilla warfare lessons from Ukraine. And I, I made all those statements to kind of set this one up to give a frame of reference for this, because we're headed for a, a time of great instability in the United States, which, you know, you, you've done an outstanding job of writing about in the Patriot series. And we're going to have a time of great tribulation. What are some of those lessons that partisan fighters have learned you know, kind of on the job training the hard way, uh, both their successes and failures in your estimation and, and those lessons that can be applied to us here in the United States? Well, I guess the two biggest ones would be the, the logistics tale in Ukraine and how it's, it's starting to break down and also the importance of drone warfare. Uh, in terms of logistics, we're starting to see where Ukraine is running out of people, running out of fuel, running out of ammunition, and running out of batteries for their high-tech uh, 
weapon systems, and especially the night vision and communications equipment, it's, it's really starting to hurt. And as the war grinds on in Ukraine, we're going to see the importance of a, a deep and robust logistics trail. And, you know, right now Ukraine has a, a, a tremendous amount of foreign military aid pouring into the country, but they're running into logistical problems with that in terms of spares and also commonality is a huge issue. Uh, just receiving all those American 155 howitzers, which don't have commonality with their 152 ammunition, um, that that in itself is a microcosm of what, the, what Ukraine is facing. Now, from a guerrilla warfare standpoint, what we can learn from that is, in a guerrilla warfare situation, in CONUS, in the near future, Americans are going to be on their own. There will be no external supply. There will be no resupply except what we can scrounge on the battlefield. And that'll be spotty at best. So it makes the, the entry factor logistics that much more important. I'm glad to see that Americans stocked up very heavily on ammunition and magazines since the end of the uh, 1994 assault weapons ban when that sunsetted in 2004, but we really should have bought even more. It it takes a lot of money, a lot of fuel, a lot of ammunition, and uh, a lot of, uh, as I mentioned before, batteries to keep an army in the field. And we need to learn from the logistics mistakes that Ukraine made and apply that to our own personal planning because it's going to be yo-yo time. Yo-yo is an acronym Y-O-Y-O, which stands for you're on your own. And that's the situation that will be in the event that America is ever invaded or there's another need for a guerrilla warfare uprising. So it's yo-yo time, folks. That makes your logistics incredibly important. The other factor that I talked about was drone warfare. Unmanned aerial vehicles have proven themselves to be incredibly important in the context of modern fourth or even fifth generation warfare. And there are weight limits on unregistered drones in the United States, but even the lightweight drones like a, a DVI Mavic, for example, is incredibly flexible. If nothing else, it's a fantastic tool for reconnaissance, uh, surveillance, and target acquisition. RISTA. And if you consider yourself, I'm talking to you, your listeners, consider yourself well squared away and you say, yeah, I'm sitting pretty, I've got it all. I've got to ask you, do you have body armor? Do you have night vision equipment? Do you have plenty of batteries for that night vision equipment? And the new question, do you have a drone or multiple drones and, and spare uh, propellers, batteries, battery charging, all that? Do you have that dialed in, folks? And if you don't, you better jump on that equipment now. Yeah, I would agree. The, the role of drones on the battlefield is really 
undeniable. It, 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 it's, it's a game changer. I've seen some people out there, and, and I'm not necessarily going to say that they're wrong, that they say that maybe we're putting too much emphasis on it. Uh, I, it and I can't agree with that statement because, it, you know, it's always good to have an eye in the sky. Now, what I will say uh, from a personal standpoint, my own experience is that if you're going to be running a drone and, and you're going to incorporate a, a drone into your plan, your group's plan, because uh, if, if you're by yourself, you need to work on getting some more people who are like minded that, that kind of live close to you, um, you know, which is something you've talked about, written about, you know, ad, ad nauseum, as have I. But you need to have somebody who is dedicated at just using that drone is, is a subject matter expert on that. Now everybody should be cross trained in this functionality, but you need to have one person who that is their dedicated role. Right. Because you need a, each group needs a drone wizard. Right. Right. Because it's, it's one thing it's just like it is with communications. Uh, it's one thing to say, well, you know, I I have radios. Uh, Okay. But do you know how to use them? And do you know how to, uh, most importantly, properly implement them into a tactical plan? And that answer usually comes up short. Um, the point is, is though you, you need one person who is dedicated to operate that drone, whether you're running a patrol or they're assigned to retreat security, because they're going to know the ins and outs of, of how to fly it, how to troubleshoot it. But most importantly, they can implement it in the most proper manner. And right. so that's that's really important. We're seeing that at the tactical level in Ukraine on both sides, mm-hmm. uh, both, both the Russians and the Ukrainians. And we did that. We, we were doing that when I was in Kirkuk, when I was in Samara. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, we had enablers who were attached to us that were specifically assigned to fly the, the different levels of drones, uh, yeah. whether they the, were local the Russians or, or are using, the Russians are using drones just as much as the Ukrainians. Yep. They just are using better OPSEC. They're not crowing about every little victory they have. They're very they're right. very close mouthed about their successes with drones, but I'm sure they've been, they've had just as much success with drones as the Ukrainians. Uh, well, the other thing to consider about drones is there's a learning curve there. And yes. the end result of that learning curve is a lot of broken plastic. Uh, yeah. It takes yes. time to learn how to fly drones. You're going to make some mistakes. You're going to break some uh, propellers or completely lose drones or drown drones. That's the worst. Um, and you're going to... Uh, have to have spares and with that learning curve you're you're not going to want to trust your your drones or at least your primary drones uh to inexperienced operators so conquer that learning curve now while that equipment is cheap and plentiful because there will come a day when that equipment is like gold and you and don't you don't want to want to risk flying because you don't want it to risk it uh, getting broken Right. Right. That, that's you, you're you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, in, in my experience with with classes where people have brought drones and, and they've tried to implement them into patrols, that's exactly right. Um, I want to kind of 
The role of drones is very important. I want to kind of broach another topic with you. I know uh, in one of the interviews that we've done, you've recommended to people very wisely to standardize on the AR-10 platform for a large number of reasons, all of them very valid. And, uh, you know, magazine commonality out there, Magpul makes one for the SR-25 pattern. Uh, 7.62 by 51 is, is a overall excellent caliber uh, for a lot of things. And one of the, the things that we have noted, especially early on in the Russian invasion campaign, so back in March, early April, we saw a high number of Russian senior officers, uh, staff officers, flag officers, uh, who were being killed on the battlefield because of the role of snipers. Uh, very well-trained mm-hmm. snipers. And the AR-10, the, the AR-10 platform, makes for a relatively easy weapon to begin that training uh, as a precision marksman. If you will... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the other advantage of the AR-10 is you don't need to carry a second PDW weapon. Um, say, with a traditional sniper team... You'd have two guys, uh, one with a uh, spotting scope and one with a bolt-action rifle. Traditionally, it was a 308. Now they're moving up to 300 Magnum and, and up. And then uh, the guys would also have to carry like an M4 or something for their own personal protection to break contact in case they did get into a situation where they were getting flanked. With the right. AR-10, you don't need to carry two weapons. With the AR-10, you've got a semi-auto 308, which is very capable, thank you very much, of uh, laying down a good base of fire for breaking contact to to bug out. Right, right. And, you know, having served in that role, uh, you know, and, and with the, the M24 as, as my own primary weapon, I can attest to that. Uh, I carried an M4 also. And uh, for that very reason, because of the volume of fire, um, you know, you, you're the, the M24, the, which, uh, you know, the successor to that, the M2010 it is a very, uh, precision oriented weapon. It is a very deliberate weapon. Uh, whereas the, the M4 is more, you know, general purpose if I'm taking contact, but now the, some of the guys in, in the section were assigned the, you know, early on, uh, the early model of the M110, and that supplanted all the other weapon systems they were able to use uh, one. Now, it ran into its own issues, um, which I'm not going to dive too deep into, but a lot of the the modern AR-10s that are out there that are very, very affordable have alleviated all those issues. And, and you know, what the British were running during my time in Afghanistan, the, uh, the LMT uh, AR-10, platform was was a beautiful weapon uh with a 6548 acog on top of it that was their designated marksman's weapon mm-hmm. what a wonderful rifle and and not extremely heavy for what it was either and and i think that 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 would make a, a very very capable preparedness platform but in this guerrilla warfare role you know if if we find ourselves in the near future in, in a destabilized united states that would be a very uh, well-suited weapon for uncertain times. I have to agree. Yeah, that's, uh, I think it's definitely the way to go 
for most folks. Uh, there's a few states where uh, AR-10s are banned, but other than those states, I think that's definitely the route to go. In those states, because they, we no doubt have listeners in those, what do you recommend as a viable alternative? Well, for folks who are trapped in places like California, I would think in terms of like mini 14s, which somehow never made it onto the ban list in California, and the M1 Garand. Um, it uses an eight round end block clip. With the right training, an M1 Garand can be just about as capable as an M1A, an AR-10, or an HK-91. Um, so if you're if you're in a gun deprived locale like that, I would look very carefully at either an AR-10. Another possibility would be the FN-49, which is used as a 10 round um, internal box magazine that's stripper clip fed from the top with you know, a, you know it's a 10 round magazine, so a pair of five round stripper clips makes it fairly rapid to reload. But the FN-49 is another gun that is not on the ban list for most of the states that have so-called assault weapons bans. And that rifle could be obtained in 7-millimeter Mauser, uh, 308, 8-millimeter Mauser. So there's some, there's some options there. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's not one that you see mentioned very often either. So I wouldn't think that the, the demand would be too outrageous for it. No, they're uh, out there, uh, and the prices actually have not gone as mu- up as much as a lot of other rifles, surprisingly. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly one to, to consider if you're in a, de- in a gun-deprived state. But um, my main advice for anyone living in a gun-deprived state is to go ahead and vote with your feet now while you have the chance. Go ahead and move to a gun-friendly state so that that and a lot of other factors won't be an issue, because... Most of those same gun-deprived states are deep blue states that have high taxation and uh, just a a deteriorating quality of life with a lot of homelessness, uh, high crime, the whole works. Uh, It's it's really time for you folks to move. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, We we, people keep getting the warning signs. You know, they, they keep getting the warning signs. They keep being told, hey, you know, it, it's it's time to do something about this. And, you know, there, there's always that excuse that gets made. Oh, I'm going to do it next year or, you know, I well, I'm going to stay at this job until I can afford to retire. And it's, it's like, look, you know, what what good is a retirement if you're not going to live to spend it? You know, amen. So. <sighs> Going back uh, a couple of steps, you know, we, we've talked about Ukraine and we kind of set the stage for this brooding conflict here in, in the United States. At what phase? Well, let me think of exactly how to put this. I, I've got some some uh, press releases here that, that are, I think are, are very interesting. There's one that I'm sitting here looking at uh, that I can forward over to you, and, and I'm tossing around the idea of posting it up on American Partisan. Uh, coming from Antifa here in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, I, I'm a few hours away from Asheville, uh, but Asheville's kind of a, a hotbed of, of leftist activity. Um, but Antifa in Asheville, North Carolina is open, openly threatening the police. Uh, they're saying that if if the the police of Asheville do not protect their protesters, and of course they don't specify who they are, 
that they are going to have to do their job for them. And of course, this closes with you have been warned. Um, this is a, a very blatant threat to law enforcement. Now, where this plays into our, our guerrilla warfare paradigm here, as a, a uh, career intelligence analyst, how do you, excuse me, how do you uh, break this down? Where do you see America on the asymmetric warfare uh, timetable? Where are we and how do you interpret this? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the divide between left and right and red and blue, as they put it now, uh, here in the States is getting uh, deeper and wider with every passing day. As things progress, we'll certainly at some point reach a tipping point. We're certainly not there yet. And um, I am not advocating anyone take up arms against their neighbors, but I am recommending that people buy arms. Uh, they're a fantastic investment. So uh, with that said, do watch um, current events as they unfold very closely. And uh, you really need to start thinking about order of battle and um, identifying I think I mentioned one of my previous interviews with you, or perhaps it was a different interview. Uh, you need to, in each election cycle, you need to take note of the uh, political campaign signs in the yards of all your neighbors and keep a tally. You really need to know who the folks are that you can depend on and who the folks are that you need to basically disappear from w when the time comes. Because if they're going to be the ones who are calling the local gendarmes and trying to get a red flag order on you, you need to know who those people are. And it's a matter of, you know, you know, IPB, it's, it's intelligence preparation of the battlefield. Right. Right. It, it's, you know, I think that we're getting ready to see that. We're getting ready to see that quite frequently. Um, with this new uh, red flag law that, that, you know, several Republicans, most notably John Cornyn, who is uh, something of the heir apparent to uh, uh, Mitch McConnell's dubious legacy, you know, they, they're all supporting this. They're all supporting this incrementalism. And the left is going to take full advantage of this. A anybody who has uh, a couple of brain cells and is wide awake, you know, as you and I are, we see this. We know that these laws are going to be weaponized because if you give the left an inch, they're going to take a mile every single time. Yeah, in fact, I just wrote a piece for my blog on the weaponization of the FBI. And if you, um, for example, Tucker Carlson just did a whole rundown of FBI uh, arrests and and uh, warranted searches that have gone on since Biden took office. It's quite the laundry list. The FBI is being weaponized. I think we're going to see more and more of that as time goes on. It's the world we live in, folks. Wishing things are better would get better is not going to be sufficient. We're going to have to insulate and isolate ourselves in a, a meaningful way. Uh, yes, it's going to mean it's going to be kind of a bifurcated life for a lot of people. 
because at the same time you want to be politically active, you also want to be down Periscope in terms of what folks in your community think of you as an individual. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it'll be important that you uh, maintain political action, but a lot of that can be done anonymously through anonymous donations to political campaigns via U.S. Postal Service money orders and uh, anonymous letters to the editor that are you know uh, sent with a pen name and sent via snail mail. But you got to be very careful about your electronic paper trail because if we are coming into the era of red flag laws, you've got to be very careful about your social media presence and your activity on um, bulletin boards or what they now or forms now they call them, um, where you need to have a layer of anonymity that exists just for your own personal protection. I've never gotten involved in social media. For those folks who have, I recommend that they at least, if they've, if they've made any posts that they think could be misconstrued, that they close those accounts and then open up another account that I would call a vanilla account, where you only make really mundane posts about what you had for dinner the other night, for example. Um, and you know what fun you had on your vac vacation to Guadalajara. You need to distance yourself. Dis your, your 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 persona needs to <laughs> go through a bifurcation. Yeah, yeah, it, and we're already seeing these moves in New York. Uh, New York immediately uh, the the governor Hochul, uh, who is. It's very interesting how they, they keep finding these people. Um, it, her, her trajectory into politics is, is bizarre to me. Um, but, but anyway, that, that's beside the point. But as soon as the decision came down, uh, striking down New York's gun laws as, as being unlawful, the magazine laws, uh, which this session of, of the Supreme Court is, is really a whole other topic for for a really good podcast i think but they they immediately we, we, we've entered a, a time where politicians can just say well it doesn't matter what the supreme court says i'm going to be lawless and and uh, interpret it my own way and and if you don't like it we'll just pass more laws which is exactly what they have done um both new york and california Yes. Yeah, they both, yes. They both said that they're um, going to ignore the Supreme Court decisions, and uh, if um, if the situation for concealed carry permits becomes non-discretionary, they will find other roadblocks they can put up. Whether it's declaring more and more areas off limits to concealed carry, which is the you know the, the most logical one, but they can also Put up training requirements that are almost impossible to fulfill. Right. Right, and and we're already seeing that. We there are uh, some moves that have been made in New Jersey, as well, uh, and uh, Connecticut, and in several of these draconian states, the, the usual suspects out there. And and um, it, it, we're in a fight. I mean, for every for every win that we get into. Uh, or every win that we gain, 
the left is is just going to do what it wants and and continue this lawless activity. Uh, so folks really have to be prepared because this I think that this red flag law that they passed is going to be a weapon that that gets abused on part of local, state, and federal law enforcement. Indeed, it will. Um, it's it's obvious that they want to uh, have the red flag capability there and that they want to go back through social media, um, presumably, you know, all the way to the, the point where people establish social media accounts. And they want to have the, you know, the, the permit itself may be uh, non-discretionary, but the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the hoops that you have to jump through to get to the permitting level they can try to add more and more layers of bureaucracy, including extended background checks, including um, uh, incredible training requirements. They're going to make it as difficult as they can in these blue states. You know, thankfully, we live in a nation where in 34 states, you can still buy guns privately without having to go through an FFL if they're on the secondary market. And we also live in a country where more and more states not only have non-discretionary CCW permits, but constitutional carry where there's no permits required at all. We keep, but it's the red states that are pushing in that direction. The blue states simultaneously are pushing in the opposite direction. And there's that same chasm between red and blue that I was talking about before. Right. Right. It, it's... We're certainly uh, uh, there are a large number of culminating factors that are all coalescing, and it's certainly not painting a good picture for us. It's looking With, a lot uh, like you know. Oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's looking a lot like the United States in the 1850s. Yes, yes, you you, you literally took the words right out of my mouth. We 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 are headed towards that. Uh, the, the Missouri Compromise of 1856, which was a very much a precursor to the Civil War, we are in that time now, uh, except that we, we have global threats. The, the United States didn't necessarily have global threats that were uh, pointing all of its barrels at it at the time. And nowadays we do. So we, we, I would say that we're every bit socially in, in that type of uh, time, that heated um, political division that, that we're not going to have a resolution for. But simultaneously, we are uh, we, we're in a bad way internationally as well. And so this isn't going to be simply a, uh, you know, a, a, a left versus right fight. We're, we're going to definitely have uh, international intervention as well because of nuclear arms and the sizable natural resources that are at stake at well, as well. Uh, with that said, just final thoughts as we're closing out the hour. What should sure, Americans I, I, be? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I recommend that your listeners uh, take a good close look at the history of the Spanish Civil War. Um, there, of course, you had communists fighting fascists, but in our case, it's going to be uh, socialists fighting traditional Americans. 
But in the case of the Spanish Civil War, there were not geographic boundaries. It wasn't like the American Civil War, where everything pretty well lined up against basic geography. The enemy is going to be living in close proximity to Americans in the event of a second civil war. It's going to be a lot more like the Spanish Civil War, where there's a socio-political divide, but not a geographic divide. So study that war very closely and uh, take a look at the lessons that can be learned there. Amen, brother. I, I, that's that is one that uh, several people, yourself included, have pointed very wisely uh, over the years as, as being a, a precursor, a, a kind of a good look at the past and to how uh, things may manifest in the very near future. Coming up on the hour, I, I just want to ask one final question and, and uh, really, really appreciate you being here. But. What is the number one thing, if you can recommend one thing that Americans go out and get in order to better prepare themselves for the problems on the horizon, what would it be? Wow. Um, I, I'm always tempted to quote food storage as the most important. But nowadays, I would say uh, communications and night vision equipment is probably the most overlooked, uh, most underrepresented logistically uh, in the Patriot community. We've got our beans, bullets, and band-aids squared away. But when it comes to communications equipment and night vision equipment and the batteries it takes to run those, uh, people are very lightly equipped. So please look very closely at that, folks. And be prayerful in your preps. And again, if you have the opportunity to move, Vote with your feet now, because this this summer may be the last opportunity you have to move before the real estate market falls apart and the the buying advantage that you might have in liquidating a house in a heavily populated state and moving to a lightly populated state is going to disappear. Amen, brother. James Wesley Rawls, thank you for being on with us yet again. It is always just a, a huge honor to have you here. Thank you once again. I, I pray the 91st Psalm for you and all your listeners. Amen, brother. God bless.